So it is great to be with you online again. Greetings to you wherever you are in the world uh, watching this. Now, uh, this sermon is the first of a two-parter, although I actually preached the second part of this message back in April uh, when we looked at John 12 in the build-up to Easter. And today we are exploring chapter 11 of John's gospel. And John 11 is like the turning point of um, the gospel. Uh, See how John 12 starts. Verse 1 says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. And that's six days before Jesus is crucified. And the second half of John's gospel focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And John 11 links the first half of John's gospel, which focuses on Jesus' public mission, with the second half, uh, which depicts Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem, his trial, his execution at the hands of the authorities. And and so John 11 is this mid-season finale. It has everything you would expect from a mid-season finale, heightened uh, tensions, a serious setback, a miraculous intervention, and then new resolve, and a rallying of the opposition, setting up a climactic clash at the season's end. And so John John 11 is an absolute gem of a passage. And it's a story that magnifies God's life-giving purpose for the world. Indeed, I think it mirrors John's purpose for his gospel. So remember, uh, John records the purpose uh, for his gospel and the purpose for his writing, his eyewitness account, uh, in John 20, uh, 21, uh, sorry, John 20, 30 and 31, where he says, these are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's see how this plays out in John 11. And I've split our 44 verses today into three chunks. So verses 1 to 16, uh, which sets the context for us, 17 to 37. And we'll look at Jesus' interactions with Mary and Martha. And then verses 38 to 44, where we explore the crescendo of this story together. So let me read that first chunk. Um, So this is um, uh, verses uh, 1 to 16. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. At this Mary, whose uh, brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews uh, there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble for they see by this world's light. So when a person walks at night, they stumble for they have no light. After he had said this, he went to them. He went on to tell them, uh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Uh, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
Uh, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So these verses provide the context for the rest of the chapter, which is this growing confrontation between Jesus and the religious elites. And there are several narrative uh, beats um, to the story so far. Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, and so after a short delay, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Uh, This clearly astonishes the disciples who complain to Jesus, like, go go back. Uh, But Jesus, they, they try to stone you there. And Jesus tries to reassure his disciples, and it's clear from his answers and his riddles that he knows more than he's letting on to the disciples, but they remain unconvinced. Like, imagine the comedy moment of verses uh, 14 and 15, which say, so then Jesus told them plainly that Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go with him. And at this point, I imagine Jesus sort of striding off and saying, come on guys, let's go. And then sort of the camera pans back to the disciples who are still standing there waiting for Jesus, being like, what? He's, he's, he's going? You can understand their dis- disbelief. And then verse 16 says, and then Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, oh, let us go also, that we may die with him. Uh, can you hear the resignation in, uh, in Thomas's encouragement to the group? Can you sense the despair amongst the disciples, the disbelief? Them sort of saying to one another, are we really going to go back despite all of the troubles? It's so important for us to understand the emotional context of this story. We've got this stressed out and pressured group with Jesus who genuinely think they are walking with Jesus to their deaths. And they are going then to visit a grieving village and a family who are dear friends of theirs. So let's, let's continue to read on, verses uh, 17 to 37. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been, de- uh, been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to find them in the, um, to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus is coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, uh, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister um, Mary aside and said, The teacher is here, she said, um, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, and he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not um, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So here we see Jesus responding to Mary and Martha as he approaches Bethany. And, and notice how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha in two very different ways. These two sisters grieving the same event at the same time. They even say the same thing to Jesus as they approach him. Martha in verse 21, Mary in verse 22, uh, sorry, 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a statement of grief and hurt and faith, isn't it? Like, can you feel it? Do you recognize it? Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Lord, if only. And before we look at how he answered each one, there is a lesson for us here in, in how Jesus answered these two sisters, grieving the loss of the same person at the same time, even saying the same thing to him. And that's contextualization. Now, now what, do, what do I mean by that? Well, we've already talked in this uh, series about how Jesus' model of ministry is one of incarnation. Now, incarnation means God in the flesh. Again, think of uh, chili con carne, which literally means chili with meat. Chili con carne, chili with meat. Incarnation means God in the flesh. And in the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, God contextualizes himself into humanity, a particular culture, and then even into specific conversations. And this is one of the astonishing truths of Christianity. God himself comes to live and die with humans. God contextualizes himself into humanity. And if you'd like to explore more of this, then have a read of Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, or Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Yet these passages tell us how eternal God humbled himself and ministered to humanity by being born as a man in first century Israel. Now, in this way, Jesus contextualized himself into a specific culture. Have you ever heard a preacher say something like, of course, the first hearers of this would have intuitively known the context into which Jesus was speaking? Indeed, we talked about that in regards to Jesus' teaching about being the good shepherd. Caring for the flocks was a massive deal in Jesus' day. Every town would have had its shepherds. And so Jesus spoke powerfully and persuasively into his Jewish culture using national and religious stories and symbols and cultural artifacts. And then we see in chapters like this, John 11, we see Jesus contextualizing himself all the way down into individual conversations. Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha, the way he treated each of them differently as a prime example. Here is Jesus comforting Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus. And he responds to Mary and Martha in two very different ways, despite it being the same grief, uh, same grief over the same person at the same time when they said the same thing to Jesus. Jesus still treats each one uniquely. And so here is a lesson for us. Do we see individuals or do we see people for the cherished individuals that they are? particularly when we're looking to care for someone or to share our faith with them, 
Like, do, do we simply pursue like a cookie-cutter model of sharing our faith? Or, or do we carry around a sort of one-size-fits-all answers for people regardless of their circumstances? Or do we seek to go deeper like Jesus? Now, principles and frameworks should be learnt and applied. It's very wise and very healthy to learn from others. But how are you sharing your faith with those who are around you, with their unique stories and characters? For instance, how are you living out your faith in your workplace or your school? Your office or school will have a unique culture in it. Um, And you'll be particularly aware of this if you've moved jobs or schools uh, recently, you've even moved class. You'll notice with a new group of people, there's a, a new culture, new things going on amongst them. Or a question for you, how are you discipling your life group? These small groups that we have of every, at Everyday Church where we can intentionally meet together, do life together, encourage one another. How are you discipling people in that context? Do you see people for the cherished individuals they are? So why don't you make some time this week just to think through how you could contextualize this wonderful gospel of love and life and light to those that you share your life with. Jesus contextualized himself all the way down to individual conversations. No two people are the same. I would humbly suggest that we learn to do the same. Now let's dive into these two conversations that Jesus had with Martha and with Mary. He meets with Martha first. Have a look again at verses 21 to 27. And here we see to Martha, Jesus gives a theological answer where he both affirms and informs her theology. He affirms her belief in the resurrection that awaits creation at the last day. That was a common and correct belief in Jesus' day. So he affirms, but he also informs. See in verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, Notice Jesus doesn't say, I am the resurrected one, which would focus solely on his identity. But he instead says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this statement is is as much about his work and his purpose as it is about his identity. Now, resurrection means a bringing back to life. It's a restoration. And there's so much in Jesus saying that this is who he is. That there will be a final resurrection, but also that healing, redemption, flourishing life is breaking into our dying world now. That there is a great rescue mission of God that even death cannot withstand. That it is in him that death will be defeated. It is in him that life will spring forth. Jesus raises the dead and he bestows eternal life on those who believe. And this eternal life, not just being something that we get when we die. No, no, it's much more something that in him we gain now that lasts through death into eternity. And Jesus is saying that he is the focal point for all of this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who can defeat death is in our midst. What a comforting thought for Martha. Now we'll see how Jesus shifts from word to deed shortly, but let's now consider his interaction with with Mary. Let me reread verses 32 to 35. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, he fell at, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. So while with Martha, Jesus had this conversation, with Mary, Jesus simply weeps. Jesus wept. John 11.35 is the shortest verse in the Bible, and it's full of significance for us. In this action, we see Jesus' astonishing compassion and emotion. He is clearly moved, and he shares in Mary's grief. Now, far from God being removed from our pain, um, maybe distantly aware of the suffering of, our, of, of his creation, here we see that God empathizes with us. He knows our grief and pain and shares it with us. Now, if you've been through grief, you will understand the importance of Jesus' action here. When my dad died two years ago, the comfort I most appreciate is from those who come and inhabit my pain with me and cry alongside me. And this is how God feels about our grief too. He weeps alongside us. What an amazing God we worship. Now just before we move on to consider the next amazing part of the story, like, were you one of those people who identified with me about our if only prayers to God? Like Mary and Martha who approached Jesus and said, if, if only you had been here. Do you, like me, recognize this cry of unanswered prayer in, in the pain in the middle of difficult circumstances? Well, then take heart, for we're not at the end of the story yet. And, and let this sink into you, your heart and your circumstances. God is with you in your pain, and resurrection is on its way. God is with you in your pain, and resurrection is on the way. So let's read on together as we see Jesus, in, Jesus move from word to deed. Because I am the resurrection and the life is far more than just an intellectual comforting thought. Let's read this incredible miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So it's verses uh, 38 to 44. Let's read those together. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, just, just note like how significant that little emphasis is from the gospel writer John here. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there is a bad odor for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard, hear me, and I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, 
Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. Uh, Here in the raising of Lazarus, we see the embodied, particular and concrete manifestation in the present order of the world of the truth and power of Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. Indeed, the whole structure of John's gospel depends on this fit between Jesus' words and his deeds. So the one who claims to be the bread of life, he feeds 5,000. The one who claims to be the light of the world opens the eyes of the blind. And here we see the one who claims to be the resurrection and the life raises Lazarus from the tomb. Like what an incredible miracle. Like just, just imagine the change in the crowd as Lazarus comes out from the tomb. Those who mocked were silenced. And more importantly, what comfort and provision for those who grieved. Joy instead of mourning. Praise instead of despair. Now let's track uh, Lazarus' journey through these verses and let's see how it uh, mirrors our own journeys with Jesus. Because Lazarus starts these verses dead in the tomb. And in this lifeless state, he is rather obviously isolated from his community and unable to participate in the fullness of life. Cold, empty, lifeless. And then he is called by Jesus to new life. This is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite metaphors to describe the difference that knowing Jesus makes. Like check out Colossians 2 verse 13 where the Apostle Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Or how about Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I love the way that theologian Maria Bolding puts it in her book, The Coming of God. She says this, One of the most powerful of Jesus' invitations is that described by John at the raising of Lazarus. A sign that points towards Jesus' own resurrection and the truth of his claim that he himself is the resurrection into the life. Into the grave of the dead man, of a dead man, dead four days, he shouts, Lazarus, come out. All the power and mystery of God's call to sinful mortals are in that cry. Now, there's, there's another quote that I wanted to share with you, but I, I couldn't find it. And so allow me just to paraphrase it as best that I can remember it. But it's the thought that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus come out, then this cry for Jesus of come out, such as his power, would have risen everyone from the grave such is his power such is his desire to call people out of death and into life this progression of death to life is evident in the life of every one of Jesus' disciples we start our lives dead in sin and we receive this invitation of jesus into new life just like lazarus jesus calls out in a loud voice lazarus come out and he still does 
So just like Lazarus, should we respond to Jesus' invitation, we start a new life with stumbling small steps out of the cold, out of the dark tomb of our old lives, to the warmth and freshness and light of our new lives, having received grace from God. Now, I love Jesus' words to the crowd in verse 44. Let me read them to you. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, that's the crowd, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, imagine how quickly Lazarus' friends and family would have responded to this invitation. What a powerful reminder that Christianity is a team sport. And that this is a role that we are called to play in each other's lives. Now, thinking of Lazarus's grave clothes, what, what a powerful metaphor of the sinful patterns of behavior that we can be ensnared by. These grave clothes are things that belong to our old, sinful, dead lives. And just like Lazarus, we can be aided by others in removing them. Like, what a wonderful metaphor, discipleship. Asking the question, can I help you take those grave, uh, can I help you take those grave clothes off? Yeah, I, I love this chapter, and I, and I love it for the contrast that we get of, of Lazarus at the start of John 11 with Lazarus at the start of John 12. At the start of 11, Lazarus is gravely ill and dies. At the start of chapter 12, Lazarus is the guest at a dinner party with Jesus as the guest of honor. Uh, let me read verses uh, 1 to 2 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. These verses are a reminder of how this new life Jesus shares with us is made possible by pointing us again towards Jesus' death and resurrection as the authorities conspire to kill him. Uh, one last quote, this time from Marianne May Thompson. What brings life to Lazarus brings death to Jesus. But what brings death to Jesus brings life to the world. This is the God that we worship. And this is the God who is calling you to new life. And so let's respond to this good news together now.